Hello there, and welcome to another episode of Fuds on Film. This is our intermission podcast for October 2020. That's our not-at-all-themed episode, unless stuff that we happen to have seen since the last one is a theme. <laughs> Which it may be, it's a weird year. <laughs> We've got six films in this podcast to talk about, of varying degrees of quality. What we're going to start off with, though, is... Oh, well, first of all, introductions, I suppose. We'll start off with introductions. Hello, I'm Drew. I'm joined today by Scott. Hello. Right. And as I was saying, we're going to start off today with a film that has managed to avoid irritating me by casting a 16-year-old or almost 16-year-old as a 16-year-old. So honestly, that gets a pass right away and I don't need to speak more about it. <laughs> Scott, Enola Holmes. Five stars, says Paul Ross. It's an Enola Holmes. Uh, so it turns out there's another scion of the Holmes family, at least as far as Enola Holmes is concerned. The entirely fourth wall-destroying Enola, played by Millie Bobby Brown, is the younger sister of Henry Cavill's Sherlock and Sam Claffin's Mycroft, and had been growing up alongside her mother, the unconventionally strident Eudoria, played by Helena Bonham Carter, receiving a diverse education that encompasses both mystery-solving and jiu-jitsu. However, it seems that things will change markedly when Eudoria goes missing. Guardianship falls to the chauvinistic Mycroft, who would sooner have Enola shipped off to a finishing school to become a proper lady, which holds little interest for Enola. She resolves instead to head to London on the trail of Eudoria, having uncovered a hidden message and a stash of cash. On the journey, she becomes embroiled in the problems of the young Viscount Dukesbury, played by Lewis Partridge, on the lamb from a bee-bowler-hatted thug, and, as it happens, both their problems are intertwined, leading to a begrudging respect between the two, despite the vast gulfing capability between them, as they unravel these threads. And, well, so it goes, in a relatively predictable but not entirely unenjoyable style. It's a light, breezy, young adult twist on the Sherlock setting, and everyone involved, but particularly Millie Bobby Brown, plays events with a light enough touch that their charisma can paper over the gaps in the somewhat meandering plot that's a bit too heavy on hammering home an important but not all that well-integrated feminist message. Uh, But that's by no means enough to ruin a perfectly entertaining film, one that's not going to revolutionise cinema by any stretch, but it's more than enjoyable enough to pass a couple of hours with. Oh, and if you need any further examples of how copyright law is broken, the Conan Doyle estate filed a lawsuit against Netflix over this film, claiming that it violates copyright by depicting Sherlock Holmes as having emotions. This is silly, as is a lot of Enola Holmes, but a little bit of silliness is not unwelcome at this juncture in history. Drew? Yeah, I really quite enjoyed this. I don't have much to to say in response to what you said, Scott, but yes, Yes. it's the, the feminist message is is worthy, but it's very heavy-handed. Yes. Um, and I feel that with just a little bit of tweaking, you could have got exactly the same message out of it without having to spell it out. Yes. Yeah. Or did with no tweaking, really. Just, it's, like, it's like a man's world, and there's this idea that uh, Mycroft and Sherlock, particularly Mycroft, is really the head of the household, not the father's dead, and despite when he was like him being younger and all those things. Like, you know what? It's, it's all really kind of obvious. And I just like you saying, right, you go and you make sure you can make your own way in the world, Enola. Yeah. And it'd been fine without anybody saying anything. It's really obvious. It's, it's kind of disappointing. It has to be quite so. Um, yeah. like on the nose about it look I know writers that use subtext and they're cowards <laughs> so. yeah, uh, but yeah it's really solid it's perhaps a little meandering but it's funny it's entertaining uh, I quite like to see more of Henry Cavill actually I thought he was playing Sherlock quite nicely yes yes because you know he had emotion so he's a human <laughs> being which is good I feel it perhaps owes a bit of a debt to the Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes films um, although in this case it's more pencil drawings that are explaining what she's going to do and what she was thinking rather than recreations of um, how he's going to beat someone up. Yes. <laughs> I feel like it was playing a wee bit with that. I think the key is Millie Bobby Brown, because, especially because of the fourth wall breaking. If she wasn't likeable, yeah. that would be quite tiresome. But she is likeable, yeah. um, which is which is good because there's a... I say they could get tiresome. There's quite a few of them. They're not... It's not that they say anything. It's just like a couple of really amusing looks to the camera yeah. it's like sometimes mm-hmm. exasperation and sometimes like oh what do I do now kind of, and <laughs> they're actually reasonably subtle in as much as fourth wall breaking can be subtle that <laughs> yeah. it's I wish they'd actually had quite as light a touch with the feminist message as yeah. the actual the comedy beats they're getting from that uh, yeah she's a likeable presence and really when you're casting a 16 year old it matters that they're 16 yeah. <laughs> it really changes how you feel about a film like, this felt like a, a young woman 
a, a girl becoming a woman that's sort of age like right and it fits in like why she feels in some way vulnerable and other times like it's the energy she's got things like that. so instead of me watching this thinking oh I am so concerned about how this clearly 27 year old is going to get on in this scene <laughs> yeah it's it's fairly lightweight as a film you know it's I don't think it's going to stick in the the memory particularly long not because it's bad, just because there's not a huge deal of substance to it, but it's, it's entertaining and it's funny and I can see it getting a sequel and I would quite welcome it, actually. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit of a confession, but it's a very likeable one and you, you, I can't imagine anyone sitting down watching this and actively disliking it. You, you know, it doesn't seem to do anything particularly badly and it, it doesn't really do anything um, like astonishingly really well, but it's just a, a nice, comfortably likeable film. Uh, I could happily watch one of these every couple of years same as I could happily watch yeah, uh, one of Guy yeah. Ritchie's uh, Sherlock Holmes every couple of years ago. Now I come to think about it, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's just likable. Yeah, and you could just—I mean, I would probably drop Mycroft because I still take a Mycroft particularly interesting yeah. character, uh, particularly in this incarnation when he's Stephen Fry wandering about in the nutty, um, <laughs> shocking Kelly Riley and the Guy Ritchie ones. That's actually quite funny. Yeah. And here he's just a bit of a miserable git. Yeah. Um, um, and I don't really think Slam Claffin's the problem. I think it's just the way that character's written. It's like, it's, whereas having Sherlock here, and I quite liked the way they had Sherlock be quite pleased that his sister was like doing better than him in one eye, rather than like think have been like, having injured pride or anything. Yeah. So yeah, another couple of these with just like a wee bit of Henry Cavill Sherlock here and there, just mingled through the story. It's like that would be quite fun. Yeah, uh, yeah. One every couple of years for even though they did two or three films in total, it's like yeah, that would be a nice wee series. It'd be quite entertaining. Yeah. Um, so I'm actually I'm I'm hoping for a sequel for this one because it's um, I don't think the conceit, um, particularly the fourth world break and how they have the structure story. I think it wouldn't stand up to being a television program or anything. Cause it's mm. just, they would be trying to do too many. It'd be get too formulaic very quickly. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, I, um, reasonably regular film series, yeah. It could be fun. Yep, which is unusual for us to say. Um, <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Right. Shall we move on then to Irresistible? If we must, my apologies in advance, folks. Uh, I'm supposed to be preparing for this one, but by the time I went to Karen Wright this today, I'd basically forgotten all about this film because I saw it months ago. <laughs> <laughs> and it was dropped from a previous podcast um, and... I now remember even less about it. So. Well, I've more or this less is... forgotten everything about it and only watched it a couple of days ago, so... <laughs> this, I guess, kind of follows in the trail of things like Wag the Dog. A very different tone, but in terms of it being a satire of electioneering hmm. um, and political spin, that sort of thing. Directed and written by John Stewart of The, the Daily Show. And it's about Steve Carell's what is the term? Political consultant? No, campaign director, I guess, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I would go with Sven Galli, perhaps, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Political Sven Galli of the Democrat Party, who thinks he's found this great middle American um, candidate who's obviously a lifelong Republican and he can turn him around and get him to be this great Democrat candidate after his party got thumped in what was clearly the, meant to be the 2016 election. Hmm. Yeah. Although it kind of skirts around that a wee bit in terms of just how clear it makes its references. And so he goes along to this little town and starts trying to persuade Chris Cooper, this rural former uh, military guy, to run as a Democrat in his Republican town, his red town. And then along later comes his great rival, Rose Byrne, who's the Republican political Svengali. And they're basically just trying to one-up each other with their ridiculous stunts and how badly they treat people in terms of just trying to get the win for the party. And then, about halfway through, it decides it's a comedy <laughs> because it's really quite earnest up to that point, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is like one of the problems I have with this. Like the tone's really weird because it doesn't seem to remember it's a comedy about halfway through. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> then it kind of becomes like a political, a satirical political comedy. And then at the end, there's a really, really stupid twist that doesn't fit with the film at all, but probably fits quite well with John Stewart's views on all of this nonsense around political campaigns. Yeah. 
that is that is essentially all that happens in the film. There's not a great deal to recap in it. Um, I think the problem I've had with Irresistible is it's just, be straight up, it is supposed to be a comedy and it simply isn't funny enough. Um, yeah. As you say, there's a whole stretch where it almost forgets to put any jokes in at all. The jokes that it does have, I think it, I think some of the stuff that's trying to position as jokes just didn't come across as funny because they're, they're kind of, they're so, they've been so tropified that it just reads like a normal political setup. You know, the, the, uh, out of touch big city guy coming in and assuming all these uh, all these rednecks are not up to his level of sophistication all that sort of stuff that just goes on like that for ages and it just doesn't do anything even remotely amusing or funny and yeah. th- this came from someone like John Stewart I just cannot imagine um, how he got rid of this um, I've got an awful lot of time for John Stewart's work in the past and I've found him incredibly funny frequently for so many years uh, but this is absolutely dire it gets a bit of life in that final stretch after its sort of silly twist. But really, the movie that John Stewart wants to make is about an interview that he has with one of the uh, directors of previous directors. Of, like, I, I can't remember if he was, like someone supposed to be in charge of regulating um, super PACs, something like that. So he has a kind of chat with him during the credit roll where he's talking mm. about campaign financing and has a little bit of a laugh with him. And I think you know, that's the film that he wanted to make. Everything from that twist onwards in the last bit, that's, that's the bit that's actually of any kind of political satire, bite, interest or laughs occurs in the last like 10 to 15 minutes of this film and the whole 80 plus minutes in front of it is just pretty dismal and ultimately forgettable dismal's strong it was it's never that bad um steve carell has enough talent and charisma to kind of drag you along with it and uh, chris cooper and all that there's a there's a great cast there that makes up for a lot of its shortcomings in the script but it's not worth watching up until the last no. ten minutes, and I think if it there's a, there's a decent idea for the film in here somewhere, but this isn't this ain't it, bro. It's just not funny enough, which is a real shame, a real disappointment from coming from someone like John Stewart, who I expect much better of. Um, yeah, it's just not funny enough. I can remember how absolutely accurate this is, but what I felt watching this is it did remind me quite a lot of a film I talked about on this podcast in. Oh, I think even 2015, mm-hmm. a long time, maybe early 2016, called Our Brand is Crisis. Yeah. With very, very similar characters in Sandra Bullock and Billy Bob Thornton's characters and that, mm-hmm. uh, doing very, very similar things. And it was terrible too. <laughs> uh, again, yeah, you're right, Scott, there's enough talent in front of the camera here to make this watchable, I guess, would be the best word. Yeah. But you're right, it's, it's very, very tired with the, the tropes and the cliches that it leans on. And although the end portion kind of tries to subvert how it acts begin, it is very much that. It's like these rednecks are unsophisticated stuff and it, it feels very much like it's punching down Yeah, um, in a way that wasn't funny 30 years ago when films did that. Yeah. You know, and, it, um, and, and also it has to kind of do that for the, the twist, if you like, to make some sort of sense, but that is not worth sacrificing 80 minutes of your film with to, to set up yeah. that punchline. Exactly. By the time, by the time you've got to the end, because it's past the bit where it actually starts trying to become a bit more comedic in the middle. Yeah. Um, you kind of forgot like that that will be connected to the bit at the beginning. So you just got the lingering bad feeling for how they treat the townspeople at the beginning. Yeah. And by the end, instead of getting like kind of ah yeah shows you it's like oh yeah I guess they're doing that now. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is a pity, but I had forgotten about the bit in the credits. But absolutely, you're right because. He should have been making some sort of documentary or something. Yeah, I think rather I don't think this ought to have been a, a fiction. I think you could have, he could have made a really really entertaining documentary about this. Like even maybe you set up as this ridiculous idea that like actually no, here's this guy in charge of these. He's showing you this could entirely happen. There's there's nothing that could stop this happening. And yeah. Then, yeah, know, expanding a bit more something, but yeah, it's it's, it's maybe not it's the, real... the best um, analogy, I suppose, but something like the way the Big Short handled it, where it is, you know, it, it's actually dragging in some some bit more, um, you know, two camera descriptions of how this could happen. If it set up more like that as a kind of pseudo documentary, yeah. uh, nothing else, then that would probably work better and make the same points better and let him be funnier for longer rather than just having an awful, awful lot of setup that's not worth it. Although, yeah, and yet another really, really disappointing political film with Steve Carell, which yes. is a, a pity because I like Steve Carell a yeah. lot. Um, the Big Shot is, is, for many reasons, not the best example, but I, I do see where you're coming from. Yeah, um, in the end it's more, and that, one of the reasons I'd 
watched it with the last couple of ones, it's like coming up to US election season. It might be quite topical. Yeah. It's just not very interesting, unfortunately. I'll stick with um, last week tonight. Thank you very much. Yep. <laughs> which is consistently excellent. <laughs> and unfortunately, really real, which is the actually terrifying and depressing thing about it oh, for all <laughs> that it's funny. Yes. Right, let's move on then, Scott. From that to First Cow, which is one of the oddest... Uh, titles for film I can imagine remembering a while yes which came first the cow or the egg that's the question that first cow seeks to answer and does a surprisingly terrible job of it uh, <laughs> um, set in the before times of the uh, of 1820s Oregon John McGarrow's Otis Cookie Figowitz is a mild-mannered cook for an unruly bunch of fur trappers who stumbles upon Orion Lee's King Lou who's on the run having killed some Russian bloke. After striking up a friendship, they go their separate ways, only to meet up a little further down the line at Fort Tillicum, uh, once Cookie takes his leave from the trappers. Uh, they chum about for a while before learning that Toby Jones's chief factor has shipped in the territory's first cow. They reason that the fresh milk that they could obtain from this cow could be used to make baked delicacies the likes of which the territory has never seen, on account of it being a largely untamed wilderness with no baked delicacies whatsoever. <laughs> Sneaking in at night to milk the cow, they their produce is a roaring success, however the increased demand risks drawing the unwelcome attention of the factor and his brand of frontier justice. Some chasing may be involved, which may or may not tie in with the leisurely told framing device at the front of this, with Aaliyah Shawkat digging up two skeletons in the modern day. Now, I'd heard good things about this film going into it, but then again, I'd heard good things going into Kelly Reichardt's previous Certain Women. I didn't get a lot of joy out of that, and I've broadly the same things to say here as I did about that. So perhaps it's just the case that her style is not my cup of tea. Uh, There's a lot in here that I can appreciate, at least. The cast give uniformly believable performances of believable characters, given the time frame, and it looks great. It's just that the entirely intentionally slow pacing of the film and the straightforwardness of the story just was not connecting with me the way that it seems to have done for others. It's all just a bit too minimalist for me. Maybe if it had more dubstep, or if the cook had turned out to be an ex-Navy SEAL who must stop a group of mercenaries taking over a warship, it would be more my speed. But it's important to recognise that I have no taste. <laughs> Look, it's a well-made film, for sure, and I'm sure there'll be a great number of people who are much more receptive to its arthouse charms than I was, so I'm not going to denigrate the film other than to say that it just didn't do a lot for me. Drew, do you have any more luck with it? No. Fair <laughs> Fair <enough>. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's... Um I heard good things about this second-hand via you, because I'd never heard of this film <laughs> yes. at all before last week when we talked about it. <laughs> I do apologise. <laughs> um, I have no particular problem with minimalism. Sometimes that can really appeal to me. It, it's not really the actual events or setting in this that bothered me, though. It was more what happened and what they were trying to say. First of all, though, the way the film begins irritated me. <laughs> yes. Because... It, it's, it's unneededly slow. It's, it didn't need no, no, to no, no, even that, Scott. It's spectacularly stupid. And I, I think maybe you're thinking of it not the same thing as me. Uh, mm. Because I don't know about you, but if I discovered human remains in a shallow grave in the middle of the forest, my first thought would probably be, I should perhaps tell the police about this. Yeah. This may be evidence of a crime. <laughs> my first thinking. thought would not be to uncover both sets, both skeletons with my bare hands. <laughs> Yes. Now, call me a weirdo. That's not where my mind goes to in that potential situation. (laughs) And then after that, there's just... It's all kind of heads the same thing. So you're you're starting off with the two skeletons and then you you figure out quite quickly, well, that'll be um, Lou and um, not Paul Dano. Um, and his resemblance to Paul Dano's irritated me the whole way. It's like, could you not just be Paul Dano? I had the same (laughs) thing, but I was thinking more like, like Shia LaBeouf. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so like, you get the idea like, quite quickly. Like, oh, I suspect these are the skeletons. The rest of the film is going to be how they got to be in this grave together. Yeah. Um, something obviously went wrong. It's a shallow grave in the middle of the woods with no markings. Yes. <laughs> and the film begins with a quote. A quote comes up on screen from William Blake's The Proverbs of Hell, which I don't know anything about. But the fact it's got that name, certainly if you're not familiar with it, it, makes you think that it's suggesting bad things about what the quote's about. Mm. But it says, um, the bird, the nest, the spider, a web, man, friendship. The idea being that those are things that define the person or the creature. Possibly travel, certainly it's what people live in, you know, and it's like, 
so that therefore humans can't be humans without friendship. It's what defines them. And then the film's about friendship. Okay. But then I guess at the end of the film, it's suggesting that friendship is what got them killed. But it's not. It's definitely the script because it makes no sense what happens at the end of the film that they would be dead. And that irritated me. Um, <laughs> a I, lot. I, I semi-agree, but... Um Kelly Reichardt does have a habit of not ending films as much as stopping them somewhere during the second and a bit act. So I think the inference you're supposed <laughs> to take from it is there was a boy hunting them or following them. I think that what you're supposed to infer is that he actually caught up with them and killed King Lou, while it's probably more likely that um, Cookie just kind of bled out and died at the end there. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, Cookie would die. It, it's setting up an explanation without actually giving to it and letting let you work with that. That seems to be um, Kelly Richards' MO. Um, however, it's not all that well yeah. set up here, I don't think. See, I had that thought too, particularly because the kid that's tracking them is the same one who didn't get to buy one of their cakes when they were selling it. And I, I was like, that doesn't make it any better. I was like, wait, so he's dying because he got didn't, um, he got stiffed and buying a cake at an exorbitant price one day. Um, that Can I feel like that's where their film was trying to send me yeah um, yeah and also just because because i was thinking about that because it's quite obvious that he's going after them with a gun and then i went back to check to start the film again just to see if there was like maybe some sort of bullet hole or something like no so there's nothing there so there's nothing to suggest that that's how they killed they died um so yeah i was aware that that was possibly the suggestion but it's a stupid suggestion as was them dying where they died anyway for no reason um no, I just I just didn't get on with this film at all. It was like, for all like the nature was like beautiful and wild and stuff, was something that, like she managed or cinematographer managed to make it look incredibly drab. And I don't know how they did that. Like this forest should be beautiful and lively and it just it just looked grey and brown and miserable. Yeah, I think oh oh also there's another reason this film can do one actually to <laughs> they're setting up this idea that when they're stealing the milk, right, that they're going to get, like, really greedy or arrogant or, like, careless. Mm. And that's how they're going to get their comeuppance. And they don't, they get their comeuppance because a branch breaks. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, that's so it's like, but it was bad luck in the end. No, screw that. I hate when films do that. I hate it so much. <laughs> I, it was particularly ridiculous too because the scene they did end, they all the, it was all set up for all the rest of the stuff. And like, that made no sense. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's given them the warning and he's just like, he's too obsessed with his job uh, um, to pay any attention to it or something. But no, they got caught because a branch of a tree broke at the wrong time. Stupid and offensively stupid. <laughs> no, um, yes, I did not like this film, Scott. I can't say I, I can't say I hated it. It just was an inert substance for me. It, it didn't really make much of an impact one way or another. It was it was there. Um, I didn't hugely dislike it, which actually I suppose is, I suppose is something of a, a recommendation if a film that's just not, not for you at all can get by without actively annoying you. I suppose it's got some charm to it. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't. I can't say I'd be recommending this to anyone either. Shall we instead then move on to console wars? Yes. Um, I would like to preface this by, by like warning anybody listening, um, if anybody's left, <laughs> that, um, yeah, I'm going to moan a lot about this film. And I realise that I've sounded particularly moany um, in this episode. Yeah. But it's kind I of getting promise- into a specialist subject area, isn't it? <laughs> We're on Mastermind. This is what we're going for, so yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, but also, uh, in terms of the moaning, for um, the last film we're talking about, I don't know yet how Scott feels, but I will not be moaning about that one, so it gets better, I promise. <laughs> okay? Just in case you want to switch off now, which I'd entirely understand, it gets better um, towards the end of the podcast. I would like to remind you that I normally put chapter markers in these films, so you can skip forward if you want to. That's a, that's a thing yeah, you can do. Yeah, but don't. Where's the fun? There's <laughs> no fun random, it's just you. <laughs> anyway. <sighs> Console Wars. This is, as Scott has indicated, very much in our wheelhouse. A documentary about how Nintendo was the worst and the smart, handsome folk had Mega Drives. <laughs> oh, and, well, if it gives me plenty of irritations to moan about on the podcast, and it does, well, then that's all to the good. 
Based on Blake J. Harris's not particularly well-received 2014 book of the same name, Console Wars attempts to chronicle the battle for home video game dominance in the United States after the video game crash of 1983. With the plucky upstart Sega and their genesis shocking the arrogant, dominant Nintendo who, with their NES, were the home video game market in USA in the late 1980s. Unlike the book, which presents its story in a series of reconstructed, i.e. made up, (laughs) conversations and meetings, the bulk of this documentary allows the prominent players at Sega and Nintendo to tell their own story in a series of talking head segments, often accompanied by 8 and 16-bit style animations that actually look considerably better than anything actually did in the consoles at the time. And, well, this makes for an interesting story, particularly when the likes of Howard Lincoln are still clearly salty and dismissive of Sega. (laughs) Alas, I was too annoyed by the film to really enjoy it. One of the most frustrating things about this documentary is how US-centric it is. Part of that, even a large part, is understandable and necessary. The primary adversaries in the story are the US arms of Nintendo and Sega, and the video game crash that played such an important part in giving Nintendo an opportunity with the, NES, with the NES was US phenomenon. That crash not occurring in Japan or Western Europe at all. Consoles, in fact, hardly being a thing at all here at the time, with computers being the favoured gaming device. But these things weren't happening within a bubble. Yet the documentary barely even pays lip service to events in Japan. Not even the sales figures or relative successes of the consoles there. Uh, and now on to the stuff that really annoyed me. <laughs> you know, Scott, it's remarkable the number of times that I don't walk around to the side of someone's head while they're talking to me to get a better look at their ear. <laughs> uh, call me weird if you must, but when someone is telling me something, I'm quite content to look at their face. But console wars, along, it must be said, with almost every other interview piece in the world, it seems, indulges in that spectacularly irritating conceit of having two cameras and people during an interview and cutting to shots of their profile for no reason. Though we are, at least, largely spared enlightening close-ups of knees, or they'll love me when I'm dead's bizarre forehead-centric framing. (laughs) While I'm not saying I'm advocating giving a slap to both the people who film or edit interviews like this, and to people whose attention span is so short they demand it, this is a lie, I'm advocating precisely that. (laughs) If you need something more visually stimulating then the animations I mentioned are there. There's no need to show me the back of someone's head unless what you're making is a hairdressing documentary. (laughs) And, well, in the interest of not making what I honestly thought would be a quick review even longer, I'll just list my other irritations. A guy had the moustache after Vietnam. That's a significant part of this. Cool story, bro. (laughs) Next, the film explains what SOJ and SOA are abbreviations for, despite it being blindively obvious from context. Sake of Japan and Sake of America here, being out of context, but regularly talks about 16-bit technology without ever explaining it, as if the layperson would actually understand what that meant. <laughs> then there's the fact that the visuals are either poorly matched to the conversation, or are deliberately done to undermine it, and I can't decide which, though I think poorly matched. For example, a comment about Nintendo selling to very young kids accompanied by footage of the notoriously difficult DuckTales. <laughs> And then, not irritation, but bafflement. It's comparable to the launch of Madonna's sex book, you know, Sonic Tuesday. (laughs) There's a sentence that needed interrogation. (laughs) The corporate intrigue and rivalry should be compelling, even riveting. But somehow directors Blake J. Harris and Jonah Toulis have managed to make something mostly annoying. Crazy. And finally, unrelated to the documentary really, but from it I learned that hedgehogs aren't a thing in North America. (laughs) entirely news to me and that US Sega's adverts were rubbish yes no doubt uh, no doubt those who are really into Sega have come across these before but while I was familiar with the whole Genesis do what Nintendo don't thing I'd never heard the apparently famous Sega before and it's crap yes like really really (laughs) crap and they're talking about it as if it's some marketing genius thing and it's certainly no Jimmy and the Barber no not a bit Get a cyber razor cut. <laughs> like what he has. Yes. yes, and please, please put that jingle in there, Scott, because I've been listening to it all day and maybe that'll make it go away. <laughs> if you want to bring down the best in the world, boy, to live, don't turn that If you want to smash crashing monster hell or fry the D 
electric spell. If you want to be a Satan, get yourself a cyber racing. Yeah. Get the cyber razor cut me. That, that's still it's done. <laughs> 30 times I've listened to that YouTube video today and I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> I I was watching this. I didn't I didn't hate this film, but I was watching it all the way throughout thinking, who's the target audience for this? Because it's clearly Americans between the ages of 38 and 47 who <laughs> vaguely remember having a Mega Drive or a Nintendo but they haven't, weren't all that into it, so they can't remember this stuff and really aren't all that... I just want a little bit of a nostalgic nudge to remember some of that because <laughs> this there's nothing interesting in the vast bulk of this documentary. I mean, what it's saying is Sega sold some consoles, Nintendo sold some consoles, and they had adverts for them. Ooh. There's a very brief amount of interesting... Bits, when it gets towards the end of this, when it all fell apart, which is actually much more interesting, where it's starting to talk about the absolute dysfunctional relationship between Sega of America and Sega of Japan, and I know you couldn't make a documentary about that and get these talking heads in because they're not going to want to talk about it and probably contractually couldn't talk about it, but mm-hmm. that's actually the interesting bit, the way that Sega of Japan were almost hobbling Sega of America, or, or at the very least the way they were, they were running is two completely separate offices, often at completely different heads to each other, and that led to all these hardware screw-ups that they made up and... Um, and bye-bye Sega. Yeah, and eventually leading to their exit from the market. And it misses a critical trick in not even mentioning Sony until the last, like, what, five minutes of this film, which was, I mean, it was mentioned they were supposed to be working with Mega Drive, but they were actually going to make the Sony's CD, uh, the Nintendo CD system at one point before they went off and made the PlayStation, which entirely changed the landscape to, of games going forward. So I think they've just kind of picked the wrong focus on this. They've picked a, a, a bit, uh, maybe it's actually more interesting to Americans, I don't know, but I mean, the way that, but you, you, looking at it from a European perspective where we would never had really any... I mean, the NES wasn't really that big of a thing here. And I'm, I've not checked the numbers I meant to, but I'm fairly certain the Master System outsold it. Um, if it didn't, it would have come close. And neither of them, as you mentioned, Drew, have even the slightest... Nothing even remotely comparable to the home co- uh, computer uh, no, I... ecosystems, which have been going for much stronger, for much longer. So, yeah, it's just of almost no interest at all, other than sort of a, a vague curiosity for Europeans um, to see what was going on in the American market, if you didn't know already. And I think most people kind of do. The, 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 this story has been told more than enough times in the... Um, gaming enthusiast sort of circles that we might run in. Um, actually, it'd be much more interesting to see something about this time frame told from a European perspective, because I've heard even like younger European and British gamers, when they talk about this time frame, they've kind of internalised this American race of how it went, and not even they don't remember what it was like because they weren't around at the time, but it was a very different landscape in Europe. It was an even more different mm-hmm. landscape in Japan. And maybe comparing all that would have been a bit more interesting for a global audience, as it is, as I say, it's a very narrow audience that would have any interest in console wars. And even then, I don't think it says all that much interesting about it. But yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't hate it, but I can't possibly recommend it because it doesn't tell you anything useful. Uh, I was hating the way it was made rather than what was said. I was more like, I wish there was something more here. Yeah. But I mean, I say it really is incredibly US centric, but it's it clearly suffers for it. Um, mm. For a lot of the reasons you say, um, and I mentioned that it doesn't even really mention the sales figures or anything in Japan. Well, it's like Japan was a really big market, and you can understand, right? If say the Mega Drive was not doing as well, the SNES wasn't doing as well, whatever it was, and you mentioned like how things were in Japan, set Europe aside at the moment, right? Yeah, it's always been um, the redheaded stepchild yes, um, in yes. the console um, space in terms of how the companies treat it. It's uh, it's surely that would at least explain some of the decisions potentially. Yeah, yeah. If like how it's doing in the domestic market, which they understand better, that sort of thing, and it's just not there. And yes, it's really useful because consoles really weren't a thing in Europe until the Mega Drive. Yeah. I think, I think the, the Master System had been bigger. So Sega might see it more of an entry into Europe, but the Mega Drive was, was the big one in Europe, way bigger than the SNES. Yeah. Um, there may have been reasons for that, though, and it which may have come out of like US marketing or something. So like, it could have affected the rest of it. And there's, it's nothing, there's nothing in there. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, so it's so strange that 
um, I hadn't thought about that, the, the whole sort of internalising the thing, but certainly I know that the console video game console crash is like quite well known here, even though it didn't happen. Yes. <laughs> there was something of a um, home computer game crash like the year after that, maybe two years after. Although that was to do with like marketing. It was just like basically a race to the bottom in price and the piracy, easy piracy of cassettes and things were a bigger issue there. Yeah. Set of different factors. Yeah, the, apparently the 2600 only sold 30,000 units in the Netherlands, which had 14 million people at the time. So, like, you know, consoles were not a big thing in Europe at all. That yeah. was a massive console um, in the United States. So I think you're right, there's certainly a lot more interest, I think, to be had. And you're right about it, you'd have difficulty getting as much access, but there's much more interest to be had in like, the downfall of Sega in particular. Yeah. Nintendo is probably less into because they had a few missteps. The N64 was a bit weird and sticking to cartridges. The GameCube was definitely the also ran of that generation. And you know, Nintendo basically burned all their bridges with third-party developers by that point. Yeah. But they came back with the Wii. People know it. Nintendo was still around. But Sega... Yeah. Um, going down but also Nintendo's own arrogance leading to the rise of the PlayStation yes uh, like you mentioned the the fact they were actually going to make a SNES CD thing with um, Sony uh, and then decided at a trade show to um, publicly embarrass Sony say look we're making this one with Philips now yeah <laughs> and Sony is like just like, well right then older <laughs> paint uh, and I mean all know what happened after that it's like Nintendo nearly went out of business yeah um so yeah, there's a lot more interest we had there. It's like this, I think it could have been quite interesting if you if they focused more on like like Howard Lincoln. He, I really he is so salty. He clearly thinks that Sega were never anything. Yeah, and like somehow this was a mistake that any of this happened. Yeah. <laughs> and you kind of go like they take a slightly cattier tone. Yeah, <laughs> almost like soap opera. It's like the the backbiting and stuff. Like it'd at least be entertaining. Yes, <laughs> whereas this is um, it's not like it's completely devoid of entertainment, but it's. There's not an awful lot in it. Yeah. Apart from, you know, seeing Tom Kalins is it Kalinsky? Kalinsky? Kalinsky, I think it is, yeah. Tom Kalinsky's um ears, you know, and that's really important. And <laughs> and we see the the executive vice president of Sega America, the Japanese guy, we see him from behind and like, well, this is telling me lots and lots. Of, yeah. Um It's important we know which hotel he stayed in. Uh yeah, that's Yeah. <laughs> um yeah. and really that, that moustache story, Scott. Oh, I was riveting. <laughs> cool story, as you say, bro. <laughs> yes. So, yes, a big disappointment in the end. Um, I, I don't know for maybe American viewers, like, it's just it's going to like tick nostalgia boxes or something. But it's not going to inform, yeah. because there's no information there. Really, that, the whole 16-bit thing too, because like, Tom Kalinske's talking about the guy from Sega visiting him on the beach, and like, we're going to have 16-bit technology. Like, because you were talking about like a more like a casual audience, people were never like really into it. Otherwise, they'd remember this, Scott. Yeah. They're still going to know what 16-bit means. Yeah. Like, what the difference is. Like, well, I guess it's a bigger number, so it's better. <laughs> that's, I mean, that, that's obviously how it was marketed a lot. But it's the way they talk about that as if people would just know. And then they, they spell out other really obvious. No, it's, it's a weirdly constructed film. Yeah. I mean, if if... Hearing about this has raised any interest. You can you can get much the same information from any number of blog posts that will take you about five minutes to read, rather than ninety plus minutes of this, which didn't really add anything useful to it, despite all the access that they had. Or like look up the gaming historian on YouTube or something like yeah. that. There's so many much more informative and shorter ways to do, it, which tend also not to have really irritating camera angles. So. <laughs> which is a pity because yeah, I just, this is the stuff that. Um, we love um, and you know that's the time when we were growing up and getting into video games and stuff so it's like I was quite looking forward to this now huh? mm-hmm. no it's a bit rubbish okay <laughs> right then Scott we're going to move on to metaphor big giant metaphor I believe that's what it's called yes no I may, I may have got the translation wrong <laughs> the platform I don't know how I've got that so wrong the platform nothing like big giant metaphor yes. the platform Scott I see where the confusion may have arised uh, right um, yeah, the platform where Ivan Misogu's Goreng awakes a prison quite unlike any other well a vertical self-management centre to be pedantic <laughs> I laughed like a dream and <laughs> she said that name <laughs> his cellmate or perhaps floormate is Zryon Aguilior's 
Trimagasi, a curious older gentleman who informs them that they are on level 48, a decent enough level, and they shouldn't go too hungry or have to resort to cannibalism just yet. You see, the food in this hole comes down from level zero, where an extraordinary feast is prepared for the higher leveled inmates to gorge on for a few minutes at least, and then the platform is lowered to the next level, all the way down to who knows how far. Hundreds at least, although by that point, of course, there's no food left. Troubles arise when, on the monthly shuffling of the inmates' positions, Goring and Trimagasi awake on level 171, which it turns out is more or less the level where resorting to cannibalism seems like a solid option. Uh, thankfully, Goreng is saved by a DSX crazy lady as Alexandra Misanke's Miru reappears, a woman travelling down on the platform in search of her daughter. There's another couple of vignettes as Goreng awakens on level 33 with Antonia San Juan's Imoguri, who is trying to convince people to ration their food to allow everyone to survive, and then later with Emilio Buali Coca's Barat, with whom he and Goreng try to get a message to the administrators of the facility that, uh, well, it's something about a panna cotta. It's probably meant as a metaphor. Of course, in terms of the structure so dominant in the movie, the message is a fair bit clearer, as this isn't a film that's making its political points particularly subtly. Uh, <laughs> Where it falls apart a little as an allegory is in the text of it. There's not much in the way of remotely plausible, feasible or satisfying answers to the how, what, where and why of this prison. And it all seems a bit eager to plaster over these gaps with buckets of blood. However, for the strong of stomach, there's an entertaining movie to be found here, told with sort of impressive low-budget minimalism of something like the setup of Cube with the politics of Snowpiercer. It's by no means without its flaws. There's a lot of plot threads thrown out that ultimately don't weave together into anything ultimately meaningful, and I think it's probably a film that's better described as interesting than good, but I think that's enough to recommend it as a curio, um, if if any of that uh, bloodletting sounds interesting to you. Uh, Drew, what do you think of The Hole, as I think it's called in its original Catalan, or Basque even? And also in the Spanish too. Mm. Um, Just... Actually, before going, I always find the translation of titles of films really interesting. Sometimes they're like unnecessarily perfunctly and literally translated. Sometimes they're just changed for no reason at all, even though I'm pretty sure it'd be understood in another language. Mm. Other times I feel a title, um, and it's not just the translation, just the title kind of tells you where they're coming from. Um, This is quite interesting. The production company is actually called Plataforma. La Película, so Platform the Movie. Yeah. But in Spain, it was released as El Hoyo, The Hole, um, and also in and any other Spanish-speaking territory, I think. Whereas in France and in Hungary and English-speaking countries and a good few others, it's released as The Platform. And I find that quite interesting. Like, one place is focusing on The Hole, which is the bit that takes you down. Yeah. The other bit's focusing on The Platform, the bit that theoretically takes you up or certainly it's providing sustenance. And I, I don't know if there's much to be read into that. Mm. Um, we'll not do it here. I, I just, <laughs> it was interesting to, was like, um, that the, the name would be, like, kind of opposite depending on the territory. I was like, does that say something about a national psyche? Maybe. I don't know. Um, yeah, it's, as you may, may have guessed by how I referred to it when I passed over to you, it's it's quite on the nose with its social commentary, yes. um, which is fine, actually. You know, I, I do believe there's there's this quote about writers who's subtextual. Yes. <laughs> the cowardice they're obvious. Yes, uh, I did enjoy it. It's it was very very reminiscent of Cube um, in many ways, not just the set, but just like the way it was. They had to sort of can work with each other or not, and that sort of thing. Yeah, and being inside a structure that ultimately makes no sense whatsoever. But yeah, um, other than as a metaphor for society, which is uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, you'll remember perhaps that was also one of my problems with Snowpiercers that actually that didn't make any sense either. Yes. Like, they're all science fiction things, so you, so you'll accept some sort of advanced technology to a degree but um, this is like it's physically impossible and they didn't even try to make it seem reasonable so it's it's, it's like that's not really the genre to doing that in the end but um, where something like High Society like the 2015 adaptation of the J.G. Ballard book Mm. is doing some similar themes some similar ideas but it's considerably um, more believable in terms of like what's happening and where and how because it's just happening in a tower block yeah you know, there's not kind of magic happening as well, which kind of takes away from it. Its themes are, I mean, they're solid themes. And 
I can't argue with a lot of the points it's making. It's just there, there's no subtlety no. <laughs> in, in the film. Well, that's not always half TV, I guess. It's just that, actually, I mean, I know that the violence is, you have to have violence. The way it's represented in society is, society is violent, um, both literally and metaphorically at times. So there has to be some there, but at times it just, it took me out. Like, yeah, it's just, just, just go away now. Yeah. Not doing anything for me, it's not saying anything to me. It could have um, done with a bit of restraint. I think if it only did, if it only descended to the absolute depths of humanity once, that might have had more impact than where it just keeps kind of popping up now and again, where it feels like the, the pacing's gone a bit slow. Um, so they just throw a few more buckets of blood around the screen. Um, it, it was almost yeah, used to like, kind of patch over it rather than it being properly impactful. Yeah, it was like there's a, a scene with, with an animal at one point and I could have, like, it was quite obvious that something was going to happen to the animal and what happens to the animal, we could have been told without being shown the the remnants of it. Yeah. Like, uh, What was that adding? Yeah. <laughs> um, it doesn't turn my stomach, very little does. So it's not like I was being squeamish or anything. I was like, that was just unnecessary. What, what did that serve? Whereas like, a couple of bits of really strong, maybe even shocking violence in it, like, right, that's making a point. And it's actually set apart. As soon as you start spreading that more over your film, each one, each part becomes less impactful. Yeah. Yeah, uh, certainly interesting. I'm glad I watched it. And I, I like that it just clips along in 90 minutes. Yes, we're back on that one yes. again, folks. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's got an idea. It executes it pretty well. And it does it quite efficiently. It's not just... And like, it's crazy. A film like this, again, it's like... Film like this, ninety minutes, and you get comedies over two hours. No, what is wrong with the world right now? Yes, well, everything. Obviously, no, you've seen the world. Yes. Uh, everything is literally yeah. on fire. So, yeah. Yes. Speaking of which, um, I, I, I have this portrait of a lady, right, and it happens to be on fire. Maybe someone should make a film about a portrait of a lady on fire. Well, we are the best at this, are we not? <laughs> You're the best. Girlhood and Tomboy writer-director Celine Sciamma's latest film, Portrait de la Jeune Fille en Feu, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, finds us in the 18th century as we accompany Parisian portrait painter Marianne Noemi Merlon to the island home of Valeria Galino's Countess, where she is to paint the likeness of her daughter, Eloise Adele Enel. This portrait is to be sent to her Milanese suitor, and an unhappy Eloise refused to sit for the previous painter. Therefore, Marianne, presented to Eloise as a companion, must observe her subject stealthily, committing her features to memory to be painted later. Marianne's keen observation does not itself go unnoticed, and the act changes both the watcher and the watched, an erotic observer effect, and the two begin a romantic relationship. Although one doomed from the beginning due to circumstance of time, social standing and gender. Portrait can, and does, work simply as a compelling, beautifully shot and beautifully acted romance. But there's so much more there. The film has both female perspective and female gaze, and continues Shiyama's wonderful knack of making the story of a specific character, or here characters, universal with her attention to detail in things often as small as a glance, or lack thereof, or just a few words of dialogue speaking volumes and too many, all while Marianne Eloise's relationship plays out. There's a lot of socio-political critique there, for example the subplot involving the maid Sophie, Luana Bajrami, her unwanted pregnancy, and the methods she must try to exert control over her own life and body, amongst other things. Claire Mardon's photography is beautiful, presenting Portrait of a Lady in Fire almost as a series of paintings, artistic and mesmerising, yet without the lack of life or dynamism that so crippled Peter Weber's Girl with a Pearl Earring, a film that captured the look of Vermeer's work, but asphyxiated its world in so doing. That is emphatically not the case here, where the wild seas and cliffscapes, the blustering wind and the fierce heat of Eloise and Marianne keep the film gloriously, joyously alive. Music and its absence play a huge part in film success too. We, understandably, take for granted the ability to listen to music anywhere and anywhere, but Eloise is starved for music. Another desire, 
a need that her life denies her. Fittingly, Shyama denies the fellow music also, using only diegetic sound, the wind and the waves almost becoming characters themselves, except for the few moments where music is played in the film's world, and one spine-tingling scene where spontaneous, ethereal vocal sounds become a song sung by a group of women on a bonfire at night. The lack of music elsewhere makes this incredibly effective, even more so as it accompanies a lingering stare between Eloise and Marianne, in which their feelings are finally, almost palpably transmitted. I've mentioned already that it's beautifully acted, but the final scene is something else altogether, and possibly one of the most incredible things I've ever seen, despite involving a character sitting and uttering no dialogue. And I'll describe it no further and leave you to discover it for yourself. It's such a beautiful film and one that, now that I'm talking about it, I think I like even more than I realised while watching. Obviously, therefore, I recommend it. Good. Um, I, I don't have anything negative to say about Portrait of Lady on Fire. It just it, it didn't grab me, um, which I am certain was a fault in me more than the film. I just wasn't, I was in a really miserable mood while I was watching this and it just, it, it didn't really uh, grab me in any particular way, but I don't have any negative things to say about it. So I'm not going to harp on about that too much. And I said, I'll just uh, watch this again at some point when I was in a, a slightly better mood, which uh, is probably what it deserves. And I've liked a lot of the director's previous work as well. So I'm, I'm sure I'll be converted to this at some point in the future. Um, it's I can certainly back up what you're saying about it being a, a very beautiful looking film. It's uh, stunning looking on a, a number of occasions and uh, very well acted, all the period details on point, all that stuff. It's a really very well made film. Was That it bounced off me is probably more fault on my part than the film, I'm fairly certain. So um, I will give this another go at some point when I'm in a, <laughs> a somewhat better frame of mind to approach it. But uh, yeah. yeah, as I say, nothing negative to say about it. I, uh, I certainly would not steer anyone away from it. Yeah, uh, mood can make such a difference too. It's weird, I was one of these films we were watching, and I can't remember if it was this or not, but I was actually thinking about the fact that, like, the mood you're in and how you're feeling about watching something can make such a difference, whereas, like, mm-hmm. I mean, you never want to not enjoy a film. Yeah. But I'd really been looking forward to watching this. I'd wanted to see it for quite a while, um, and particularly having watched Tomboy. Because a couple of months ago we did Tomboy, Scott? Yeah. And like really, really liking it and having really liked Girlhood, I was like really looking forward to this. And whether, you know, that plays into it or not, like your, not so much your expectation, but your hopes. Yeah. <laughs> um, although when that, that's bitten me before and I've been really um, disappointed, so maybe not, but mood can certainly play a part. But yeah, for me, it just, I thought it was amazing. And that that final scene was just incredible. I, I, you can act that much and portray that much emotion while sitting still almost (laughs) that's ridiculous that will wrap us up for today I think if you'd like to get in touch with us um, you can do for any reason you particularly care about Uh, we're on the emails at podcast at fudzonefilm.com we're on twitter at at fudzonefilm please do get in touch and uh, we will be back in a mere 10 days or so with another exciting instalment of some description. Until such times, I shall say adieu adieu, and I'm sure that Drew shall do too. Fairly well. Fairly well.